forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. We are here in, uh, this is like a nerd headquarters uh, at Damon Lindelof's office doing what? a special one-on-one interview. Uh, Damon, where did all this stuff come from? Uh, you're, referring, str- you're referring to the things that adorn my <laughs> my uh, my walls and office space. Are the Star Wars? Because uh, that's like that's original Star Wars stuff, huh? Um, the 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 posters are all original st- uh, Star Wars posters. Th- these were birthed when I JJ and I met on a on a Monday morning, and then the following Saturday morning, Lost got picked up. We knew, knew, knew each other for five days, so I had to quit the job that I was working on at the time and and basically start working, writing this script because we had yeah. written an outline on Monday morning when I came into my office, this this original Star Wars poster, which um, you know, which is much larger than the traditional mm-hmm. um, poster, yeah, was, it's like was, a, was framed and waiting signs. in my office. And I was like someone left their star Wars poster here and, <laughs> and JJ's assistant was like, no, that's a present from JJ. Oh, wow. And I said, awesome. he sure knows how to, the way to a man's heart. <laughs> and then for my birthday that year, he got me this empire strikes back, original empire strikes back poster. And the birthday of the following year, the revenge of the Jedi poster, nice, look obviously at that. this was their teaser poster coming May 25th, 1983 to your galaxy before they changed the title to that's wild return. Um, that is so wild. I'm assuming that that's authentic. He didn't buy it in, Me- <laughs> in Mexico or something. Right. But, um, uh, this is actually a good a segue to the the thing I wanted to talk to you about. When we had you on the panel, we just sort of jumped in, really, and you know there were four of you, and it was uh, trying to get stuff out as fast as we could, um, and we really just kind of jumped off, and you were already sort of an established writer. Um, but I'm curious about you know you've you've been in this sci-fi world now. We know you professionally. Uh, with Prometheus and Star Trek and this next year and Lost before that. Um, was this stuff you were into as a kid? I mean, does the Star Wars stuff in this office attest to that? Uh, what are the early influences? Uh, what were you reading? What were you watching as a kid? Yeah, I mean, Star Star Wars was definitely the beginning of it and the love affair was born out of that. Mm-hmm. I I saw it... And for the first time in 1997, uh, 1977, when I was four, um, and uh, and and many, many, many times after that, um, and so that was the beginning of my love affair with science fiction. My dad was a huge um, sci-fi fantasy junkie. And what so, kind of stuff was he showing you, or what was he into? He was into um, he was into the original series of Trek, which mm-hmm. you know was kind of um, just uh making the syndication routes probably in the late 70s and then when next generation started in the 80s we would watch that together but um you know he was into Piers Anthony books that oh, sure. that kind of stuff um you know he he read to me the Narnia books so uh, a lot of the swords and sorcery stuff combined with um the this the sort of more kitty friendly sci-fi um, at first, and then branching into sort of more um, adult sci-fi and horror. I think mm-hmm. you know started getting into Stephen King when I was around eleven or twelve. That was another huge, you know, influence for me. How so? Yeah, let's let's dig a little 
deeper on both of those, on Star Wars and on uh, the Stephen King stuff, because these are, among people our age especially, these are not uncommon influences. But what do you think, one, you were, you reacted to so strongly in both of those uh, uh, stories? And then, two, what, what do you see in the current stuff you do that kind of echoes that those influences? As far as Star Wars goes, I, I think that I, I really can't explain what it was about that movie that our, that myself and our entire generation just really connected to. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are people much more eloquent uh, than I who have degrees in cinema studies can sort of boil it down to, you know, it's, it's base elements, but I just feel like for everyone that I talk to about it on an emotional level from the first moment that the crawl ends and that, you know, and that music plays and then the star destroyer fl- flies overhead that there was, j- it was just sort of, you know, it's, it's like, um, probably what prisoners, um, experiences. I just saw Jesus. You're sort of like, when did that happen? Like, were you lining up for food or were you getting raped in the shower? Like what, but it just happened. And so I do feel like there was this kind of, you know, almost religious effect that, that Star Wars had on us. And I also feel like, you know, um, spiritually and theistically that I, that I feel closer to the way that the force is described in, in Star Wars than I do to Judaism, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, the, the religion in which I was raised, it felt very, uh, disembodied and disconnected from me. But yet when Obi-Wan very casually just (laughs) first tells Luke about the force, you know, and he, and when he talks about it, he's not like, and you must do this, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, he's just sort of like, yeah, there's this thing kind of binds us all, you know, it's called the force and you might use it to destroy the death star one day. If you want to, you know, it'll be accessible to you because you're, you know, you're a Jedi. I'm not going to tell you that yet, but I do, I do feel like the idea that there was this energy that anybody could tap, um, really spoke to our generation, uh, too. And so the, the spiritual idea behind Star Wars, not just the coolness of the robots and the creature design, all that stuff was was awesome. But I just feel like um, that movie was a fantasy movie and a science fiction movie where where if you look at a movie like Terminator or Alien or Aliens or Blade Runner, those are sci-fi movies. They are not, in my opinion, fantasy movies, although you could probably produce someone who I could debate that with and sure. I would lose. <laughs> um, uh, suffice to say, and then the... And then the Stephen King thing was, I think that I just sort of had an idea of what books were. And although I've always enjoyed reading, I, f- I feel like when I was like writing book reports as like a 10 or an 11 year old or starting to read um, like Johnny Tremaine or whatever it is they make, make you read as an 11 year old, that they were just, uh, th- this is a book, you know, <laughs> but, but um when I read my first Stephen King book, which I think was probably Carrie, mm-hmm. um, may have been Salem's Lot. I read them both very, very close together. Um, and it was like really scary and it was inappropriate for me. Mm-hmm. I, there was a, I knew that I, uh, that I shouldn't really know what a period is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and there was bad language in it and teenagers talking about sex and, um, 
and then telekinesis, which, you know, for me, I didn't need, I've, I, I probably went for an entire year feeling Stephen King invented the idea of telekinesis. Um, and so the idea of like, Oh my God, this is a book, you know, books, books do this too. Uh, I've got to read everything that this guy, um, sort of puts out there. And then it was also that, you know, because it was inappropriate for me and they were my dad's books, it was like porn. So I like, I had to go and borrow it and then read it, you know, under my covers and then put it back exactly the way it was. And I kind of think he knew that I was reading it because I was asking him all these questions, but he didn't throw me under the bus with my mom. And so there was this sort of idea of, oh, I'm not really supposed to be doing this. Um, that, uh, that, that made Stephen King exciting. And a lot of the people that I talked to where Stephen King was an influence for them were reading his books at an, at an age that I feel was probably, you know, not ideal for, mm-hmm. he writes R rated books, you know, they're violent, they're scary. Um, Pet Cemetery w- was a book of his that I read and I had nightmares like for six months I had to sleep with the light, the lights on, you know, dimmed in my room. Cause it was just so terrifying for me, but you know, that didn't stop me from reading the next one. That's funny. Yeah. There is something about the, that forbidden or hidden aspect that's so appealing. And it is, you know, in the same way Star Wars was reading those books at 11, 12, 13 is a rite of passage. Yeah. Certainly for our generation. That's very interesting. And it's just really good fundamental storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, uh, I, I think that a, a lot can be said of, uh, of George Lucas as a storyteller in terms of him just sort of tapping into that hero's journey, Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. myth stuff. But if it were so easy, everyone would be doing it. And the idea that, you know, in a single shot with Luke just standing there on tattooing, looking out at those twin sons and hearing the Williams score that you suddenly understand this guy is not long for this planet. And in fact, he is going to be at the center of mm-hmm. massive galactic events um, that there's just this foreshadowing woven into the DNA. Cause you're sort of like, how is he going to connect this kid going to connect with what I just saw in space? Um, and they're on a collision course together. That's just great storytelling. Hmm. And I do feel like this, the storytelling that I, that I love is not, um, is not, linear storytelling in terms of this happened and this happened and this happens. It just sort of, it throws out these dots and then you as an audience member sort of have to connect them. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I do feel like, um, certainly star Wars did that as did empire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's that, that audience, uh, it's not just passive watching. There's an audience, uh, active participation in that, which I mean, obviously we saw in lost. I mean, you guys were setting up a mystery, uh, but it's also very much about these characters that we can converse with in, in various ways. Um, I went and listened to our, our chat from last year in which you pointed to a great piece of advice, which is in creating a world. Don't people... sniff model glue. Was that it? That, no, you actually said do. Was that it? Oh, was that do it? Do sniff. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Do you want to go back on that? Look, if I said it at the time, <laughs> it must have been right. You should be held to every single thing you say. You right? should know that at that I was going through a very serious model glue phase when I said that. And now oh, I am in, now I'm in rehab. Spring of eleven. Would, do you the think worst. they even have model glue rehab? Like how awesome would that be to like go to promises and you do Coveney's there and he's like, Oh, I'm banging all these women and I can't stop. And you're like, I've got a model glue problem. I don't think they even have model glue anymore. Yeah. They probably don't. Yeah. yeah. 
they probably don't who who builds models anymore people tweet us you know how to find us yeah um <laughs> but this idea of empeopling your world with um did you say empeopling yeah no is that a word in peopling oh in peopling <laughs> yeah i'm a professional writer okay in peopling and <laughs> is 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 that a is that a verb peopling yeah i've never Populating? used it yeah how about I, that? is that better I'm, i like it i'm you know what i'm gonna start using Use that. it Okay. We're peopling? busting the dictionary wide yeah. open here today. I, I would, yes. Okay. And peopling, yes. Yeah. It's good. Uh, give, the, give each character a secret, which I thought was great right, advice. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and it seems to me that this is a thing that could absolutely be said of, you know, these Stephen King books and things like that. Uh, was it, did you use this approach in going, uh, in writing the features? We didn't get to really talk about the features uh, when you were on the panel last year. We focused on TV, but in approaching, uh, Cowboys and Aliens you've written on, you mm-hmm. wrote on, and Star Trek sequel and Prometheus. Uh, is this something you used, or was it a different set of skills or a different set of tricks uh, approaching the, the features? Uh, movie writing is an entirely different animal than, um, than TV writing. And I'm not entirely convinced that I'm good at either one of them, but I'm definitely more confident in TV writing. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. The degree of difficulty is equally high on both, but TV writing is a much more sort of collaborative endeavor and, uh, and the time schedule is so collapsed that you, you've, you've done it. Mm-hmm. So you have to generate a, 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 a new 55 page piece of, if you're doing hour drama, 55 page piece of material every eight days um, of real time. Although because of the way that it's staggered, you maybe maybe have eight days prior to that to conceptually talk about it before you go off and execute it. But all in, you're talking about like at any given time, if you go into a, a, a network television show that's up and running and you say, um, you know, what are you guys working on now? The, the thing that they're working on at that point did not exist in any form two weeks prior. Like maybe conceptually they understood some of the storylines. Movies is exactly the opposite, which is over the over the course of years, um, you are t- you are talking about and and reevaluating and um, driving towards ultimately what the story is going to be. And over the course of it, it it's literally the difference between you know. Um, uh, painting a portrait and painting a fresco on the, on the, hmm. you know, the top of the Sistine Chapel. But um, it, it's that, that time difference, it leads to an entirely different skill set. And, and, um, and I'm not entirely sure that the more time that I have to think about things, the more I tend to question myself and change my mind about stuff. Yeah. And the other big difference is when I'm doing, movie work, I'm doing it for hire. Mm -hmm. So, um, on Cowboys and Aliens, this is the, I would be saying the same thing if the movie made a billion dollars worldwide that I'm saying now, which is between the fourth and the fifth seasons of lost, I came in and I did a draft with Alex and Bob Mm -hmm. and then John, and then that draft got John Favreau interested. And then unfortunately when John came on board, I went to go back to lost. I went back on, on. And so when I sit in that movie, theater and I watch it, I'm not really coming at it from the point of view of like, oh, this is a movie I wrote as much as this is a movie that I collaborated on or that I worked on at some point. Um, And it's really certainly a director's medium. And in a lot of ways, I think should be because they're the ones who are going to be on the set for 15 hours a day 
executing a particular vision. So the, and that's what it was on Prometheus too, which is I'm not going to come into a room with Ridley Scott and say like, Hey Ridley, big fan, look, this is what I want you to do. That's not what happens and nor should it happen. What happens is I come in and I say, I have some ideas. You know, this guy, John Spates had written what I thought was a really awesome um, script and uh, whatever the politics that existed at that time for them to want, um, you know, a pair of fresh eyes on the material. Uh, I, I came in, there was a lot of, and continues to be, um, sort of talk about whether or not this is an alien prequel and what does the word prequel even mean? Um, and so I said, well, here's what it means to me. And here's the way that I want to define it in the context of this movie. Is that um, something you can talk about? Can we go more in depth on that? On what a prequel is? Yeah, or at least that conversation when you said, here's what it is to me. What, yeah, what yeah. is it to you? I mean, how did you approach that material? It's interesting because that word is, is sort of a recent yeah. phenomena. I think there are other movies that, would, um, that could be defined traditionally as prequels, um, but it's something that I that we weren't really talking about um, a lot until George announced that he was going to do the Phantom. You know that. Well, I guess that he announced this is episode four, five, and six, and I have a plan to do one, two, three, and seven, eight, nine. But nobody knew what he was going to do first, and then he said, "I'm going to do one, two, three, and then people started referring to them as the prequels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing about a prequel is that. As, as as fascinating as it may be to watch Anakin Skywalker turn to the dark side of the forest, there's an inevitability to it. So you know when you go in that that the prequel can only cover A to Y, mm-hmm. and then Z is going to be the pre-existing material. So you can't really end it in a in an exciting or surprising way. You can only end it in the inevitable way. So it's really just about you know starting the movie with Hercule Poirot saying it is you, the butler, who did it, <laughs> and then then for the next two hours, I'm just going to watch a series of events that lead to how Hercule Poirot came to the revelation that the butler did it. Who wants to see that movie? That's not interesting. It's dramatically compelling in many ways. But when I went to go see the thing prequel, for example, I was like, okay, I'm assuming that this movie is going to be the sequence of events that led up to a dog being infected by the thing Mm -hmm. and then being chased by a helicopter across the frozen tundra. Um, because I know then what happens next because I saw the thing. And that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on a certain level, you're satisfied because if you're calling a movie a prequel, that's what you're expecting. And on another level, you sort of walk out going, boy, I, you know, I wish there was a little bit more room for me to not exactly know what it is that I was walking into. So in, in my opinion, in order to define the Prometheus as a prequel – is it said in the alien universe? Well, I'm not going to be the one who confirms that. All I can say is we were talking about the movie six months ago and not saying anything. And now there's material out there. <laughs> and so if you just watch the teaser trailer and you see how, the, how for example, the word Prometheus reveals itself <laughs> or look at the production design, um, you, you know, you don't need me to tell you anything. And, and I think that a lot of the fans – they sort of want confirmations, but at the same time, we have so much faith in them that it's like, 
here it is. Look at it, you know? And then, and then we did this. Coy. Yeah. And then we did this Ted talk, uh, for Peter Wayland and Wayland Yutani is obviously the, the, the company that owns the Nostromo. So draw your own conclusions of, as, as to whether or not it takes place in the world of alien. And so now the next question becomes like, well, is it a prequel to alien? And to that, I can't really answer the question because by, by my definition of prequel, by the A to Y definition, I hope it's not because it, I hope that this movie can be surprising. I hope that when, and most importantly, the ending of this movie is the sequel to Prometheus is not alien. Mm-hmm. The sequel to Prometheus, if, if, if it does well and people like it would be another movie mm-hmm. that, that goes off in its own direction that runs tangential to alien. And in fact, when when I was young and I first saw Alien and Blade Runner, I, I think I saw Blade Runner first, actually, because um, I saw it theatrically. And then I saw Alien on VHS because I wasn't allowed to go see Alien. Cause it was, I figured that they were sequels because they both had um, – you know, they both had robots in them that looked like humans that were a little bit crazy and they had the same aesthetic and they were kind of adult. And I kind of feel like this, this city of Los Angeles looks like the, the world that the Nostromo came from. Mm-hmm. Like this is the kind of future. And sure. I don't think I was sophisticated enough to know a man named Ridley Scott directed both those movies, but the aesthetic was so similar. I just felt that they were related. And I don't think it was, I think I kind of made an ass of myself years later when aliens came out and sort of <laughs> said like, Oh, like, you know, this is sort of in the same, you know, I wonder if where blade runner happens between <laughs> these movies or, you know, or what? And people were like, what are you t- talking about? You're morons. This guy's nerdy. Yeah. There's no, Yeah, there's no relation to them whatsoever. That's another thing, by the way, just to um, just to jump on a tangent that I love that Stephen King does, which is Mm -hmm. all of his books actually inhabit the same world, you know, so um, and, and none more effectively than the Dark Tower, which sort of brings a lot of characters from his past, um, you know, novels together. So the idea that there will be an oblique reference, you know, in, in, uh, uh, even in his most recent book, actually in the, in the Kennedy one, um, they visit, you know, the main character visits Derry, um, and meets a couple of the characters from it. And, uh, it's so exciting <laughs> to be, to have been reading Stephen King books for the last 30 years of my life to understand, Oh my God, like this is just for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and for someone who just basically hasn't read it, they would go right over that section and probably not think like, did I miss something? They just think like, Oh, he met these two kids. They live in Derry. Um, uh, there's some sort of reference to child murders there, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, There's this whole other thing going on. And so that idea of like fundamental world creation. Mm -hmm. And so that was another interesting way of looking at Prometheus, which is yes, this is in the same world as alien. And probably as a, as a fan, I want it to be related to alien. Mm -hmm. I want it to, if, if Ridley's, I just remember how excited I was when I first read that Ridley Scott was going to direct an alien prequel. Um, it's just, you know, you just go, yes, I, I'm there for that. And yeah. I think that you have to give the audience has a certain level of expectation there um, that you cannot um, squander. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an interesting approach to world building and storytelling, though. And, it's, and peopling. I, it, and peopling. Yeah. Um, and it's something we've seen 
kind of in everything you not you to be confused with pee polling, by the way, which is just sort of walking down hotel corridors and looking in people's people. There are other stories that take place in these worlds that you've created uh, and that you're getting to play in. There's an interesting sort, almost sort of a comic book way of approaching story. Were you a comic book guy growing up? Oh, huge. Um, yeah, massive. And my dad was really. Um, uh, we, we used to go at, I grew up in Northern New Jersey and we used to go into forbidden planet, uh, every other week in the village and just, um, he had his pull list and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so he would read his comic books and I would read my comic books. And, um, I was primarily a, um, a Marvel guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I definitely had appreciation for some of the DC characters, particularly, um, Batman, but I think that um, uh, I, I, I did I did love the Marvel books and the X books and uh, and the Avengers, uh, particularly Claremont's run on X Men and all that stuff was really um, you know definitive storytelling for me. And I did love the uh, the inter you know the the uni- the idea of a universe. Mm-hmm. And I certainly um, you know when when DC did Crisis, that was when I first started getting into DC books because because I think of what you're talking about, which is this idea of like there's going to be this unifying thing that basically spreads out and affects every character in the DCU, and um, and uh, I really I, I really love that storytelling. And then um, I, I I definitely gravitate towards conceptual comic book storytelling that tells stories from from interesting and unexpected angles like um I'm going to mispronounce his last name but uh, uh Kurt Busiek's Astro Astro City books which is sort of like he will do stories that are told from the point of view of the heroes but more often than not he does stories that um are from the point of view of the people who are standing on the streets and are affected by these battles that the heroes are having um, or a guy who's a lawyer who represents a supervillain and constructs a defense for that supervillain based on can you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury can, can we really rule out that there wasn't a doppelganger or mind control in play here? So the idea of a comic book writer saying um, let's create reasonable doubt in a world laden by superheroes, that's a new idea. And so I think that's really cool. Yeah, that, that is, uh, is it something you've, used to uh approach the stuff you've worked on i mean i'm thinking specifically of this star trek universe Mm -hmm. which you know i don't know a lot about star trek but i know that that was a sort of side then why are you wearing vulcan ears right now because that's just weird i just wanted to fit in okay is that weird no no not really (laughs) Uh, i'm getting my mouse ears on the way out. if you were like these are my ears then i'd be really uncomfortable (laughs) sure but um, but is that, you know, is that perspective, obviously it's interesting to you to say, what are the different angles into a story? Um, did you use any of that in approaching Star Trek? Cause again, it feels like a vast universe and there are any number of ways into the story. I guess what I'm really asking is how did you approach the sequel story? Well, I, and you worked with Kurtzman and Orsi. Yeah. Bob well, and right? Alex and I wrote wrote the script together. And then obviously JJ who's directing the movie is also, you know, functionally he is not sitting there with us banging away on the keyboard, but he is a huge force when it comes to the storytelling. And, you know, the, the, I don't want really want to talk about the details of, of Trek two at all, just because it's so far off. But I think the idea of, um, go of, 
doing time travel in the first movie as a means of saying we don't want to be beholden to the canon of the Trek verse because it's just so overwhelming mm-hmm. that it's it's uh, I went on to the show Nash Bridge Nash Bridges in its sixth season. That was one of my first TV jobs. And just Nash had already done so many things that um, that any story idea you pitched had had already been done or there was a reason you couldn't do it. So it's like, what if Nash met a woman and this and you know, they, they dated and it's like, no, 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 he was that he was married four times. You can't have that. And you go like, oh right. So the 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 canon itself becomes this huge monkey on your back. And as a fan of Trek, you don't want to take that away from people. So we decided very early not to do a reboot where we would say like, we're just gonna meet these guys as young guys and uh, men and women and we're just gonna do our own thing and 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 forge our own path and not beholden to any of that stuff and just change it up where we see fit. But we didn't really feel like we were allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it would have been a betrayal in a lot of ways, which is why we constructed our entire pitch based on Leonard Nimoy's participation as the person who would hand off the baton. And he's, and it was important to have him in the movie in a significant way to say, all of those things happened. They just, you know, we're actually from this point forward, we can now do different stuff than everything that happened at this point in the original series. But anything that preceded this point has to more or less stay the same. And so that idea of – so go, going into a sequel, it's like, okay, we've done that. We can forge our own path. But at the same time, the fans have a certain level of expectation. There's a reason that they love this franchise, that it's endured for as long as it has. So – what I always say is like, if you're going to go and see um, a U2 show, you want them to play where the streets have no name. You know, you just do like, and if you, if you, if they don't, you're sort of like disappointed. Um, you're kind of like, Oh, I thought they were going to play it as an encore. I think I have a reasonable expectation that they're going to play that. Even though Bono's like, Oh, bloody hell with the streets of, you know, I fucking wrote that song in 1986 and you know, but we love that song. Sure. So I think that in the, in the sequel for Trek, the, 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 the question becomes like, how much do we stay the same and how different are we willing to get? Mm-hmm. And you have to find the balance between those two things. And that's the conversation that we were having that sort of inspired this, um, the story that we did. I would imagine that conversation starts among I apologize the- for my Irish accent. It's really <laughs> bad. Oh, I thought Bono was here for a second. Yeah, I know. It was, it was amazing. It's, it, it is strange. Um, the conversation begins with the three of you and JJ too, I imagine. Um, but does and that- Brian Burke too is worth mentioning. Okay. He's uh, JJ's. Uh, he runs Bad Robot. He's also oh, okay. a JJ's producing partner and is kind of there in all those um, early meetings. So you guys kind of, uh, you know, you have these meetings and say, what toys do we want to play with from Mm. this universe? Does that conversation then have to expand? I mean, this is a big franchise. Do you have to go and talk to uh, studios or whomever about we're going to change this stuff? You I I don't imagine you say fans aren't going to like it, but sure. I mean, you know how do you how do you weigh that stuff first among yourselves and then uh, to the the entities who are kind of paying for the thing? Internally, I think that we have a really good spectrum, f- ranging from a, uh, Brian, who just doesn't know any of any of track, like just he 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 has sort of like a basic pop culture knowledge of track. 
to JJ, who um, has seen all the Trek movies, some familiarity with the original series, and um, but not not much beyond that. Mm-hmm. Then then Alex, who's sort of a little m- more to the right of JJ than me, who um, watched all the way through essentially Deep Space Nine, and then Bob. Um, Orsi, who knows everything about everything, like he is, you know, he has is bona fide credentialed, um, like off the top of his head trekker. So, so in that range, we can we can get a fair polling for if Bob is excited about an idea, we can get a sense of like the fans are going to love this. But if he gets excited and then Brian Burke or JJ says, "I don't get that." Am I supposed to know what that is? Then you go, okay, if we're going to do that idea, we're going to have to present it to the audience like it's a new thing. Okay. And that was, you know, and that was the real genius of the Wrath of Khan, which is the first Trek thing that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to uh, this day camp in New Jersey called Pinebrook and there was a rain day. And so they put all the campers on a bus and drove us into town and showed us the wrath of Khan. And when it was over, cause it was like 10 in the morning when it was over, we all just started chanting again, again. <laughs> and they showed it to us again. And then we broke for lunch. And then they, sh- so we watched it three times over the course of one day. And I didn't know any of this stuff. And so the idea that, um, that movie was actually based on an episode of Star Trek that had already happened, but I didn't need to know that. All I needed to know was this guy with the, with the shaved chest really hates Kirk. <laughs> like he is really angry at Kirk. Like, and Kirk, and I also needed to know that Kirk and Spock were best friends. The, those are the two things you need to know when you ro- watch Wrath of Khan. And it's so not buried in its own internal machinations and marriage to canon so that that a an entire camp full of kids who were like me probably didn't really have any understanding of star trek whatsoever could just love that movie um that's the sort of line that you're threading and even amongst whether you're a a passing fan oh i kind of like star trek to I've been to every single convention. The one place in the Venn diagram where they all overlap is on the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> and so y- you you aspire to do that. You aspire to get the fans saying, I love that. That feels like Trek to me. You did not betray the coreness and, and values of what is Trek. And then someone who isn't wouldn't define themselves as a huge fan or or is even ashamed or embarrassed to say, I like Star Trek, they they enjoyed it too. And so if you can do that without selling out or going mainstream, that that's awesome. That's very interesting. I mean, you guys are, are so smart about that sort of thing. I mean, again, I knew very little about Trek, but I really enjoyed that first film on its own merits. You know, oh, I think I think you were you guys were successful at that uh, and we'll absolutely go see the next one. I uh, really appreciate it. And, you know, and I, I think, though, that. You can't ever rest on your laurels. And when we start to get comfortable, we get nervous because when we're comfortable, it's because we're not really taking any risks. Mm. And I think one of the really exciting things about The Dark Knight, which is about as good as a sequel as as they get, is not just that Heath Ledger gave this phenomenal performance, but that I feel like that movie took a, a lot of risks. Yeah. There were just a lot of... Um, a, a lot of places in the storytelling and the presentation of that story that you, you kind of just went like, wow, this could have been a massive disaster and they mm-hmm. went for it. And watching something that is taking risks like that is very exciting because you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, let's talk about that in terms of Lost for a moment. Um, you know, obviously it was a grueling show to make, uh, for especially for so long to maintain the quality that you guys did. Um, was there ever a feeling of we're doing okay, we can relax a little bit, or was it always uh, a, an effort to take a risk and change things up and make things, you know, interesting to yourselves? We were never comfortable. Yeah. It always felt like we had a tiger by the tail. It always felt like if we made, you know, three or four terrible episodes in a row that we would be canceled or that we would lose a huge portion of the audience. And I don't think that was, um, I don't think that was neurotic thinking. I think that's true. I mean, right. we've seen shows, um, you know, heroes, for example, um, you heroes started in, uh, came on the air when we were in our third season of lost the beginning of our third season was probably our, our most consistent string of shitty episodes. Wait, um, why is that? I mean, what, what do you think was shitty about them? And I'm, I honestly can't recall, uh, that season, but, uh, what was, what do you think was lacking about them or why do you think that, uh, that happened? I think that there are, there are, are a number of reasons, both sort of emotional and, um, and philosophical. The emotional reason was that, we were feeling like the story needed to meet, move forward. Um, and we had already done, um, 50 hours of the show and the characters had made no progress whatsoever in getting off the Island or advancing. We had, we had run, we had burned every single st- uh, stall card that we effectively had. And so our solution was, we're just going to lock the prisoners up in cages and, 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 uh, the, the castaways up in cages and, um, and, that that's going to be the only way to retard the storytelling right now. Um, and we ourselves as, you know, as Carlton has said in the past, and I think he's exactly right. We felt like we were locked in cages because the idea that the show was still a, a, a rating success. And, but we were saying to the network, we need to end this thing. We need to announce an end date. We need to, this is a story and stories have beginnings, middles and ends. And we are just in middle and we cannot leave middle until you let us say there's going to be an end. And we know what the ending of the show is. And once you say, once we announce there's going to be an ending, then we can start. We had this whole plan in our back pocket that we could not enact. And, and so the beginning of the third season, they, they, they aired six episodes from September until, you know, the, like the first week of November. And then we went off the air until like late January or early February and came back with the remainder of the season. And in that space between those airings, we finally got the end date and then, and then we were able to sort of march forward and um, towards the season three finale, which is one of my favorite episodes of the show, which sort of declared, this is what we're going to be doing in the next, um, not just the next season, but marching towards, towards the end of the series and the whole fourth season was these flash forwards, which is like, we're going to keep showing you the future just as a way of enticing you to know that we, you know, if we show you the future, then you'll, maybe you'll stop asking us if we're making it up as we go along. Cause we have to bridge this. Yeah. Once you show somebody the future, you have to bridge this gap. You have to sort of connect the dots uh, in a certain way. So, um, so that, 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 that's what was, was happening in those episodes. So anyway, just to go back to your earlier question, if you, but at any given time, we felt like if we did not execute that we, we could be canceled. And cause the fans, 
um, I, I won't even say that they're fickle. In fact, the fans are enormously trusting. But if you betray them um, and if you waste their time, they will stop watching you. And that's that's all there is to it. So, you know, every single story that we were breaking and every script that we were writing, we never ever like looked at each other and gave each other a high five and said like, that's it. We're fucked. We're locked. We're safe. You know, we're done because there were always sort of fundamental decisions. You know, for example, in the season three finale, spoiler alert, if you have not watched Lost, I do not know why you're listening to me blather on. But <laughs> And also, um, it, it's been almost 10 yeah, years. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but Charlie funny. dies. And I remember uh, the genesis of that idea was that the entire season-long arc was going to be the Desmond um, has these visions of the future as a result of what happened to him when the hatch exploded. And he keeps he says to Charlie, you're going to die. I keep trying to save you, but... I can't sort of course correct that action. It feels inevitable. Um, and inevi- inevitability was this big sort of ongoing theme of the show. And so in the early in season two, where, when we were first t- talk- talking about the story idea, we're like, if Desmond says this to him, we're going to kill this guy. Like, are we really comfortable with that? Like the audience really likes him. And although the show has to kill off people and we have killed off characters on the show before, it's Charlie. Like, can we get away with that without really turning people off. And so we really, you know, we debated it over the course of an entire season and got cold feet on a number of, you know, it was like poor Dominic Monaghan was on death row and didn't even know it. And the reason that we didn't tell him was because we hadn't made up our minds yet. And finally we decided we've got to do this because if we don't kill him, the audience is never going to believe anything we tell them again. And so that's a, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, a huge calculated risk that we're taking, but we have to do it. But there were decisions that we were making like that all the time that we felt um, if we, if we turned left instead of right, that was going to be the end of the show. And certainly, um, although I have no regrets and I, and I don't think Carlton or any of the other writers have any regrets about the finale that we did. It was always the finale that we wanted to do. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a tremendous amount of conversation and self doubt about whether or not that was the right thing to do. You don't just sort of walk in and say, this is what we're doing. And, and, um, and we're not open to, um, to any conversation or discussion or ambivalence about it. You know, the, those conversations happened over the course of many, many hours over many, many years before you sort of arrive at the conclusion of, yep, that's what we're going to do. And you change the thing here or there along the way based on whatever cards are dealt. But, um, you know, the, no, com- comfortable is not a is not an <laughs> adjective that I would ever use to describe the process of working on that show. And yeah. you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I mean, ob- obviously it worked. I think it never pays to be too comfortable in the telling of your story. Um, I'm curious about you know, in many ways, Lost was this huge influence on the way that we consume television now, and in the way that stories are told on television now. Um, you know, in that there's been such a surge towards, uh, serialized storytelling and these heavy mythology shows. Uh, but the episode to episode can be so difficult in writing those kinds of shows. Was there pressure that you guys felt or how did you deal with, you know, we have to have a reveal in this episode. Did you feel like you had to have a reveal in this episode? You know, I remember you saying, I think on the panel, that for you guys, when you started out, the story, 
of the show was very much about these individual characters mm -hmm. and their stories. And, you know, I think that's part of why people really responded to it. Um, but eventually the fan interest became so much about what is the island or how are they going to get off or what's the secret of it? You know, how, how did you find that balance and uh, how did you deal with, again, the individual doling out of stories? Well, it, it, it was an evolving process and the way that we wrote the show in the first season changed into the way that we wrote the show over the second season and the third season and the fourth, it, it just, it, it was a different thing every time it, it, the, there really was this incredible element and I'm not trying to get all, um, sort of mystical about it. it it's actually not mystical at all. It's a very pragmatic thing. And I think anybody who's a storyteller or a writer will describe this, um, this voice that you cannot hear and that voice that you cannot hear, but is still talking to you is the, is the show or the story that you're telling. And it actually, it wants to be something. Um, and when, when you're working on a TV show, what's really cool about that voice is you're collaborating with, you know, a bunch of other storytellers. In the case of Lost, we had a, we had a room full of writers, but there was also Jack Bender who, who, you know, who ran the show from Hawaii, who is, you know, just as a, an essential part of it as any of, of us. And, um, the, the, the idea that this, that if you could not hear that inexplicable voice of the show telling you what it wanted to be, um, then it wasn't going to work for you on lost and nobody could really sort of describe this is what we need to do. or We need to do a reveal here or, um, or, or this episode needs to have a twist in it or it's time to kill another character. It was just sort of like, you know, the, we, we were getting to these points in the first season. I just remember, you know, when Locke and Boone first found the hatch and they're basically looking, you know, looking down at it, we had talked about the idea of the hatch and that they would find a hatch. But then we settled on this idea that Locke was going to find it. And then we were like, oh, he should find it with Boone. And then, oh, wouldn't that be a great Abraham and Isaac story? And Boone's going to die. Like, and I feel like the show just told us that. Like, we just we just threw out there um, Locke. Locke should find the hatch and with Boone. And then suddenly this, this idea just sort of manifested itself. And that idea when people, you know, there's nothing more frustrating for a writer to answer the question, where do you get your ideas from? Cause the answer is so mundane and we don't really know the answer. Sometimes it's like, Oh, I was watching this thing on TV or this happened to me in my re real life. And it's based on that. But most of the time it just, it just comes, it comes from, that the, the, the story ether that, uh, that might carry unwritten world of, you know, of the grid that interconnects, you know, all these cultures that tell the same stories without having, um, uh, any access to one another. So I, I do think that Lost was really just an exercise in listening to the show. And when we couldn't hear it, we had to, um, you know, just push forward to the best of our ability. And when you're doing the first, the first season we did 25 hours of the show, the second season we did 24, the third, we did 23. So over a three year span, we did, you know, 73 hours of the show. Not every single one of them is going to be a gem, um, episodically, but the, but the, but the overriding story, when you're reading a book, like, and you finish the book and I say, Ben, what was your favorite chapter? You go, what? 
Oh, yes. Chapter 20 was a humdinger. You think about story turns. I say, what was your favorite part? You know, and I think that um, what's really interesting about a serialized show is, and I experienced, because I was working on Lost, I missed The Wire and Battlestar um, and, uh, and a big chunk of Breaking Bad. And so when Lost ended, I just downloaded all of those shows and just watched them all and, and inhaled them the way that one reads a novel as opposed to I'm watching an episode of Battlestar Galactica. I'm waiting a week. I'm watching another episode of Battlestar Galactica. So the, the way that the story gets told in that fashion, when you watch them on DVD or downloaded, um, is, is, is a much, is in much starker contrast to the way that those shows air, not just because you're watching them one after the other, but because it becomes an individualized process versus a, a, a an open sourced process. So had I been watching Battlestar when it was airing, I definitely would have been going on the web, seeing what other people were saying, uh, saying about it, talking to my friends who watch Battlestar, um, you know, engaging in all those conversations. And my perception of the show would be entirely different than it is now just watching it by myself. <laughs> Which and it seems like that's sort of the way we're going too. I mean, is this this download of the show? But I wish I had watched it with everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I still I still fundamentally prefer going to see a movie in the theater, sure. not just because the screen is real big, but because you get to sort of yeah. coast off that energy of all these other people watching it at the same time as you are. It is, you know, the the human condition is really about. Um, functioning within the grander society. And so the shows that can bring, can create their own societies and make you sort of seek out others. I I felt left out when I was watching Battlestar because when I, when I, when I learned that there was a final five, I, I sort of knew like I can go on the internet right now and find out who they are. And I'm not going to, because I want to get there, but it only from for me learning that there was a final five to when their identities were revealed to me was like four days <laughs> of real time. Yeah. Whereas I I think it was probably like close to six or seven months for the people who were experiencing the show. And I I wish that I had been a part of that anticipation. Well, ironically, you were in the center of this anticipation on Lost. Right. I mean, these conversations were going on. Uh, And you guys must have been aware of them. I mean, you're aware of what the fans expect and what the fans are enjoying. Mm -hmm. Uh, Will this change the way you approach television in the future? If you do indeed approach television in the future, which is a whole other question. Yeah, I definitely want to do, you know, I miss TV profoundly and Mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to return to it sooner rather than later. Um, I just, I just love that form of storytelling and I do, and I do, I, I do like, um, I do like the idea of painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, not to say that I aspire to the masterpiece of Michelangelo. That being said, like the really broad canvas just allows so many different avenues of storytelling. And you just, from a character's point of view or an emotional point of view or a philosophical point of view, you just kind of can take your time with things um, in a way that movies just have to be, you know, you have to sort of fit it all into this two hour box, mm-hmm. um, which is, it, it, it's just essentially a lot more, more challenging for me. So I definitely, um, I definitely want to do it again. I have a great admiration for, uh, television writers like David Chase or, or Matthew Weiner who worked with David Chase, but I would not say is a David Chase protege mm-hmm. who are sort of like, this is the story that I'm telling and I'm not particularly interested in 
you know, in what the internet or the fan community is saying. I'm doing this. And I think that the fans, I'm doing it anyway. I think the fans love that idea because there, there is a certain security to getting in the car and dad says, shut up in the back seat. We're, we're going in the direction that I want to go and we're going to dinner and where I want to go to dinner. And there's a certain sort of like, okay, I trust my, I trust my dad. I'm comfortable with that. But then there's, then there's this entitled part of us that's basically like, but I don't, you know, I don't want to go to that restaurant. I want to go to a different restaurant. You need to tell me everything about why you decided to go to this restaurant. Why are you making a left up here? Like we should take the freeway that. And once you get into that dialogue with the fans, you cannot win because essentially it, the reason that you cannot win is you cannot ascribe some sort of mass mentality to the fans. There's a reason in this country that if a, if a presidential nominee gets like 53% of the popular vote, that's a landslide. You know, it's because the idea that you could get a 53 to 47% outcome, you know, is, is, is staggering. And so the fundamental idea of me saying, this is what the fans want is, is essentially assuming that all the fans want the same thing. There's this popular consensus out there that the finale of Lost was just a huge disappointment. That is the popular consensus. And so I will see on Twitter, people who liked the finale will say, I know I'm in the minority, um, but I actually liked the finale or loved the finale or the finale made me cry or whatever. But the much, it seems the much more prevalent thinking is that the the finale was an unmitigated disaster, a huge disappointment or a letdown. Um, and, uh, and I wonder, like, if I worked for the Pew Research Center, if I were to do an actual poll of everybody who watched Lost, and then you do what Pew does. You break it down and you say, like, okay, did you watch every episode or did you drop off, like, in the middle of the third season because you hated it and then you came back at the end of the sixth season to see how it all tied up? Like, and then just basically sort of group all those people. But what would the numbers be in terms of, what was your feeling just specifically about the finale? How did your feeling about the finale affect your view of the entire show, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, and this is another thing that Carlton talked about um, as the show was ending, which is there's going to be the short-term reaction to the show and there's going to be the long-term legacy reaction to the show. And um, Vulture is doing this awesome thing right now where they've picked the 16 greatest dramas of the, uh, uh, they've, yeah, they've created their NCAA bracket and, (laughs) And already there is just great disharmony amongst fans, television fans of the shows that didn't even make the bracket. And then there's disharmony about how uneven the matchups are. But I have to say, like, every analysis that they've done so far is really beautifully written and and really thoughtful. Whoever they they selected to pick for these brackets has obviously watched both of the shows um, and and, – I, I haven't agreed with the outcomes of every single one, but the, I agree with the thinking and the philosophy of it all. And that's like, and, and so the fact Twin Peaks is basically in this thing and you go like, wow, good on you, Twin Peaks, because I remember JJ and I, after Lloyd Braun uh, picked up the pilot um, based on this, this 20 odd some page outline that we turned in. On, on Monday, we had a meeting at ABC and Lloyd was there and Susan Lyne was there who was running ABC with him at the time. And JJ and I were, were there and, uh, and Lloyd said, look, you know, this is fantastic. If, if you guys are going to do this weird noise in the jungle, I get it. I get the whole mystery thing. But listen, like we cannot do Twin Peaks. Like we cannot go down the Twin Peaks road. And I just, you know, and I just kind of smiled. Some, I smiled and then Lloyd said, what? And I said, Look, I don't want to, um, I don't, 
I don't want to be controversial or alienate you or, or disagree with you, but Twin Peaks lasted for like 30 episodes and it's been off the air for like 14 years and you're using it as a cautionary tale. Like I would rather be Twin Peaks than, than a show that no, than Manimal, like that, than a show that no one's going to remember. Like I'll, I'll take 15 years from now, a network executive saying to someone, um, just don't pull a lost because at least, you know, even though you're the cautionary tale, at least you had an impact. And now here's twin peaks. Like, you know, in the top 16 shows of the last 25 years, probably of all those shows by far with the least number of episodes produced. Oh no. Uh, my so-called life is in the hunt too. And so, wow, what a loud noise those shows made in such a short period of time. And I, I, I'm, I'm gravitating towards the point of view of like, even if you feel like the finale was the worst thing ever and it actually retroactively destroyed the entire entire show for you the fact that you still feel the need to tell me this on a regular basis has got to count for something um that's what my shrink tells tells me to tell myself anyway no you can never doubt that you guys created something that's why i sniff the glue man. that's why good well let's go do that now yeah let's all right uh, let's thanks go, for taking let's the go time. peepoling this was awesome. let's go peepoling followed by some peepoling Oh, look it up. Listen, a lot of lingo gets thrown around. No, in the I know now that peopling is a peopling is a word. I just I'm embarrassed that I've never used it, and I'm going to use it a lot more it's yours. often. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to copyright it right after we're finished. Damn it! Talk to you later. Forever dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.